U.S. President Joe Biden and Russian President Vladimir Putin have concluded their summit with an agreement to return their nation's ambassadors to their posts and a plan to begin negotiations to replace the country's last remaining treaty limiting nuclear weapons. But the two leaders offered starkly different views today over rising concerns about cybersecurity and ransomware attacks originating from Russia. Both leaders, who have stirred escalating tensions since Biden took office in January, suggested that while an enormous chasm between the two nations remains, that the talks were constructive. A new report finds that Latinas have left the workforce at rates higher than any other demographic and also have had some of the highest unemployment rates throughout the pandemic. That could spell trouble not just for post-pandemic economic recovery, but for the long-term stability of the country as baby boomers continue to retire. Before the pandemic, Latinas were projected to join the U.S. workforce in higher numbers than anybody else between 2019 and 2029. Now their economic gains and upward mobility are in jeopardy. Their board is being released today by the UCLA Latino Policy and Politics Initiative, a Latino-focused think tank. It was provided first to the Associated Press. The second question for the Donahue Doherty ticket is, what do you believe your strengths and weaknesses are as a team? You want to lead it off? Or <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> okay. Uh, I just want to commend everyone else around me. Um, their strength is that they have the ability to put up with me because... Uh, I'm a little annoying at times, I get it, but it's because we're all passionate about it. And I think that that's probably the biggest strength, that we are passionate about everything that we're saying. And we don't care to think outside of the university, outside of what is even possible at this point in time. Uh, that doesn't matter, because we're trying to think of creative solutions. So that's, uh, that's what I would say one of our strengths is. Yeah, I'd say another one of our strengths is that we are both so driven. Um, both of us are so invested in the university, in everything um, that we do like on campus, as well as all of those around us. I'd say we were both very empathetic people. And I would also say that being driven and being empathetic can also be a weakness, um, simply because both of us can get so devoted that we let it you know, take up a lot of our time and it's hard to let go of projects a lot of the time. Um, we would like to like see things through, see it to the end, as opposed to letting other people you know, step up. <laughs> but, it's really difficult, and especially with like this big of a platform. It's, uh, it's really hard to not want to be a part of all of the action. Um, but something that like I've learned over this, and this would be one of my weaknesses, is that I definitely have to learn that I can delegate things. And I just need to put a lot more trust, and I have, into other people. So. Yeah, and I think this platform is also helping to, you know, not only get us out there, but also to communicate with the university so that we can meet all of the extremely talented and capable individuals that the university has to offer. So. The second question for the Parks Griffiths ticket is also, what do you believe your strengths and weaknesses are as a team? Yeah, I think um, Isabella and I can offer a lot. Uh, if elected. We are both very personal and approachable. We love talking to different people on campus and meeting new people. We're also very hardworking and we have dedicated a lot of time to this behind the scenes. Uh, we also work together really well as a team. We complement each other um, personality-wise and I think we really make up for each other's weaknesses. 
Building off of that, I think that really shows how well we work together because before this we, we really only knew each other through student government and through this project and through working on our campaign we've gotten to know each other very well and the intricacies of Marshall University very well and the student organizations on campus. Um, I would say our weaknesses are really in how dedicated and devoted we are to caring too much and trying to speak to everyone. There are over 300 clubs on Marshall's campus and we've done our best to reach out and speak to as many as possible, but that's one of our goals for if we were elected in the upcoming year, we would like to meet with as many as would uh, have us come speak and being biased in student government. You know, we both have done student government since we were freshmen and there are a lot of things that we have grown to just know as normal and we really want to hear the outside perspective on what we can improve on because there's always room for improvement and what we think could be good could always be better and just working on ourselves. The sound of online classes is one that students across the country have gotten used to over the last year. With the COVID vaccine rollout currently ongoing, students are hoping to zoom back to face-to-face -face instruction for the fall semester. Marshall University says they are hopeful to get the vaccine to students as soon as possible, and some students say they would get it right away. Oh no, I would take it in a heartbeat. As a student, I feel like if Marshall too were to get the vaccine, I would want to get it so I wouldn't endanger other people's and I could stay healthy myself. Other students say they are still a little apprehensive. I turned it down once already. People that I saw take it because I'm in clinicals. And after their second shot, a good quantity of them got really sick. And I just really don't have the time to do that with school right now. Marshall University remains hopeful that they will be able to return to normal face-to-face -face instruction in the fall. For News Center 88, I'm Alex Jackson. From the News Center 88 Weather Center, here's the WMUL forecast. Good Monday afternoon. I am student meteorologist Bradley Wells with your afternoon weather update. This afternoon, with the morning rains pushing off, expect mostly cloudy skies, but windy with gusts as high as 25 miles an hour, high at 45. This evening, mostly cloudy skies continue and breezy, low 32. Tomorrow, Tuesday, we'll see mostly sunny skies, but another windy day with gusts around 20 miles an hour, warmer with a high of 51. That is your local forecast on the cutting edge. In 2019, of the 260 traffic fatalities, 31 were pedestrians killed by motorists. This makes being a pedestrian fatally hit by car the fourth highest killer among vehicular deaths. Three weeks spanning through October and November were particularly challenging for Marshall University. On October 18th, Dr. Ken O'Connor, a professor of chemistry, was hit by a car crossing the road at the intersection of Howe Greer Boulevard and 3rd Avenue. He was sent to the hospital, and at the time of this report, he is still taking time off for recovery. On November 4th, Mary Bex Cox was crossing the road at the intersection of 18th Street and 3rd Avenue in front of the Cam Henderson Center and tragically lost her life on the scene. She was a 22-year-old student studying finance and graduated in the spring of 2020. I spoke with Dr. Nichols, a research professor of civil engineering at Marshall University, about the crosswalks on 3rd Avenue and the culture of safety or lack thereof surrounding both drivers and pedestrians alike. It seems to be fairly common knowledge among people who have to cross those roads that they've either observed or know of somebody who has had a, a near miss or in 
the events of last week, somebody who's actually gotten hit. So Students were greatly affected by the news of Mary Beth's death, as well as the fact that two people had been hit so closely in time and location. I spoke with Emma Rao to get their thoughts. It's definitely scary since the accident. I have been extremely cautious crossing the street. Students on campus have expressed to President Gilbert and President-elect Brad Smith that they feel it is dangerous to cross both 3rd and 5th Avenues and have asked for measures to be taken to enhance safety precautions. Like literally a coat of paint could make a difference. How big of one, I don't know, but at least it's something. Brad Smith said in a statement regarding the matter, quote, I am personally committed and open to all ideas to make change happen. I'm encouraged that dialogue about this critical issue has already started among the various entities involved. That is a very positive sign, unquote. For News Center 88, I'm Rebecca Law. It's a story of loss, generational trauma, rebirth, and strength. Timeless, personal, a story about what it means to be a community. The 1970 Marshall plane crash brought together a city and a university by cementing their ties through grief. Cerrito Mayor Paul Billups, 1974 Marshall English graduate. A freshman at Marshall when the uh, plane crash occurred and I had been recruited there to play football, although I opted not to, but I did know a number of the uh, players at the time. The evening of the crash, I live here and did at that time, lived here in Cerrito. So like most people here, I went to the crash scene and assisted the fire department such as I could. The site of the crash still lays barren to this day. Not a single tree grew back, serving as an earthly, eerie memorial. But the community and university quickly changed. Mike Kurtner, Kindred Communications President, 1973 Marshall Broadcast Journalism graduate. There were 50,000 crosses in front of Old Main to depict death in Vietnam. So that was one day. Then you have the Marshall plane crash, immediate impact on the community. So then you had the Kent State riots. College students got killed by the National Guard. It's a tragedy that shaped the lives and even the careers of those who experienced it firsthand. Your fireman, he was probably 16 years old at the time of the crash, too young to be there. But he was out there all that evening and Within a couple of years, he had a drinking problem that eventually cost him his life. And I always attributed his problem to uh, to the crash. And I think when he passed away, I at that time started to come to grips with it myself and realize what an impact it really had on all of us involved. And we did it in large part by pushing those memories back and, and kind of trudging forward. And to those who weren't able to do that, uh, pretty well was an overriding factor in the remainder of their lives. There was a guy by the name of Steve Gill. He worked at Channel 13, a student. He stepped on our arm and started heaving. And one of the state policemen said, if you don't want to see worse, you need to leave here right now. Both Kurtner and Billups admit to lasting trauma from being on site the night of the crash, stating that even 51 years later, it's hard to recall the scene of the wreckage and their friends within. We did it in large part by pushing those memories back and, and kind of trudging forward. And to those who weren't able to do that, uh, pretty well was an overriding factor in the remainder of their lives. Uh, I learned as I got older, it's okay to cry and it's okay to feel the emotion. I guarded against that. I wanted to be tough and, and be strong, but you, you can't do that. By processing the lasting trauma and learning to cope, it changed the way Kurtner looked at his role in the tragedy. As I said, I was a student broadcaster for that football team at the time, and I could have made that trip. And, and things like that 
change your life. And, uh, you know, being there the night of, inadvertently, that wasn't planned. But for some reason I was there, maybe just to be able to share this story with you. Maybe that's why I was there. I don't know. Both Billups and Kurtner also realized how a tragedy can sometimes positively influence a legacy. It's hard to say because the words don't sound right that there was a benefit to the community from it because I would never say that I wouldn't believe that. It did serve to draw the community, I think, together with Marshall even closer than it was, and I think that still exists today. You like it or not, that's part of the foundation. When you leave this area and you go where, anywhere in the world, if you say Marshall University, they're going to remember that. Marshall holds a story that will continue to be honored because history helps people learn and adapt to create a brighter future for generations to come. I like saying that our bodies are just vessels. It's the experiences and the people around us that fill that vessel that turn us into who we are long term. There are certain events in the, in the course of a human life and they have such a molding or shaping of our future that we should always remember that they occurred and the impact it had. There is strength in community, courage in rebuilding, and honor in remembrance. For News Center 88, I'm Michaela Wheeler. Welcome back to the 51st Annual Fountain Ceremony at Marshall University. We are joined now by President-Elect Brad Smith. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, you were just a child at the time, living in Canova when the crash happened. Can you describe how that impacted your life? Yes, I was six years old with my two brothers watching television when it scrolled across the bottom of the screen that a plane had crashed in our hometown in Canova. I ran to the back window, my bedroom, I looked out and I saw the sky glowing red. We had a CB scanner, a police scanner, and it said that a plane had crashed and I knew my cousins were volunteer firemen so we were trying to figure out what was going on. What I saw happen was a community basically come together rise from those ashes and it became one of my favorite quotes we're all born angels with one wing the way we fly is by holding on to one another wow now in um i know it's a little far in the future but is there anything that you're doing to prepare yourself as the president for your next or for the next ceremony you will be the president of marshall how does that how are you preparing how do you feel well first of all I'm privileged to have the opportunity to serve as Marshall's 38th president. I'm following a wonderful president, President Gilbert. He's a dear friend of mine. He's been a magnificent president. And I can tell you the first thing I'm doing is I'm seeking to understand before seeking to be understood. Whereas my mom would say, I have two ears and one mouth, and I should use them in that proportion. <laughs> so even though I'm from here, I'm a son of Marshall, I grew up here, there's been a lot that's occurred since I've been gone. And I want to listen and understand and learn, and then make sure that we collectively take action in the areas we think are best for all of us. Sure. Well, it's obviously already, you have a very large Marshall story, so it's not that you're starting out now as you come in to be our next president, but it will be a different chapter for you. How different do you think that will be as you take on that new opportunity? You know, I think it's going to be the pinnacle of my life. I think it couldn't have been something that I could have ever dreamt would happen. But now that it's happened, I can't imagine it. And Mark Twain once said the two most important days in your life are the day you're born and the day you discover why. Marshall is my why. Um, I want to backtrack a little bit here. You said that your cousins were volunteer firefighters. Were they on site the night of the crash? They were. In fact, the uh, volunteer firefighter chief, Eddie Markham, was here a little earlier. 
and they were with him, and uh, they never wanted to speak about it. Um, they were always very serene. Um, they knew what that meant to the families. They knew what it meant to the community, and they did the duty that they had to do, but they never spoke about it, and we never asked them. We just honored them. We talked earlier about um, how beautiful it was when the laying of the roses was happening. Everyone was so quiet, and there's just an obvious, like, tremendous respect for what's happening here. I can't imagine what that must have felt like to have seen this. You said the sky was glowing red. Yes. And then to relive this moment every year. How does that feel to relive this sad moment every year? You know, it's, it's a mixture of courage and compassion. Mm -hmm. You have to have the courage to face the grief once again. And then you have the compassion for those around you. But you know that also brings a new chapter. And that's why I love the ceremony with the fountain. At mm -hmm. this moment when we turn it off, honor them. And then in the spring when it comes back with rebirth. Because that's what they would want us to do. That's beautiful. Yes. And you have such a strong connection here at Marshall. When was the first fountain ceremony that you ever attended? Could you describe what that was like for you? You know, it would be hard to tell you the year, but it would felt the same way it did today. You go through this mixture of somberness. You go back in your memories and you remember what it felt like at that moment. And then you see the generations that have followed the 75 standing here, whether it's the team or it's the leaders or it's the family members and the great-grandkids that are walking by and laying the roses. And you realize that life goes on, that all of us have gotten stronger. And because of them, we stand on their shoulders and we carry on in their tradition. Sunday marked the 51st year since 75 supporters, coaches, staff, players, and flight crew had their lives cut short. In celebration of hope and rebirth, Families of the 75 and members of the Marshall community gathered at the Memorial Fountain. During the ceremony, the keynote speaker, Mark Miller, recounted where he was when he heard about the tragedy. I was planning to attend a dance at the local community college in town. As I was ready to leave, a text message came across the TV, Channel 3 here in Huntington. There'd been a plane crash at Tri-State Airport. No details available at this time. My father asked, could that have been the plane carrying our ball team? After the ceremony, New Center 88's Michaela Wheeler, Rebecca Law, and Abigail Cunningham had the opportunity to hear more from those attending this year's founded ceremony. Marshall University's president-elect Brad D. Smith shared with the New Center 88 team his memory of that November night in 1970. I was six years old with my two brothers watching television when it scrolled across the bottom of the screen that a plane had crashed in our hometown in Canova. I ran to the back window, my bedroom, I looked out and I saw the sky glowing red. We had a CB scanner, a police scanner, and it said that a plane had crashed and I knew my cousins were volunteer firemen so we were trying to figure out what was going on. President-elect Smith says that what he saw then was a resilient and hopeful community. What I saw happen was a community basically come together, rise from those ashes, and it became one of my favorite quotes, we're all born angels with one wing, the way we fly is by holding on to one another. Frank Wheeler was the vice president of sales and marketing for Southern Airways at the time of the tragedy. Sunday was his first time attending the ceremony. He says the sense of community was almost indescribable. So I think there's just a spirit of of commun of of involvement. It's, it's indescribable, really. Even tonight, when I was here, even when I'm talking to you 
here and talk to the president and talk to people that I see. There's a, a sense that I can e- cannot even describe it. And uh, if I'm not careful, I'm going to cry. Marshall University's president, Jerome Gilbert, says that he hopes that the tradition of the fountain ceremony will continue far into the future. I think this is part of the fabric of the university. It's who we are. It defines us in ways that other universities don't have a unifying event like this. I think it's important that we continue to incorporate this into our yearly activities so that we always will remember and honor the 75 and their families. And that will always stick with me, the the 75 and remembering the tragedy and then also the rebirth that came with the young, young thundering herd. All throughout Sunday morning, there was a storm building in intensity. When it came time to shut off the fountain in memory of the 75, the storm stopped and the skies cleared. For New Center 88, I'm David Atkins. For years, the southeast corner of 3rd Avenue and 8th Street sat vacant. But before it fell into lifelessness, it was a landmark corner. Constructed in 1884, the building housed a drugstore on the first floor and the Davis Opera House on the second floor, according to Huntington historian James Casto in his Herald-Dispatch series, Lost Huntington. But like most of the buildings downtown, it fell into disuse until it was purchased by Capital Venture Corp. That whole block was owned by one family, and they allowed us to do options on the properties, close on whichever ones we want within a certain time frame. Once the properties were purchased, Weiler says that he and Nelson already knew what they wanted for that property. They wanted to bring the market trend seen in other cities to Huntington. One thing that we think is of great value to the investor, that is travel a lot. Find out what trends are very popular in large markets and small markets. So whenever we would travel, we'd go to a, a retail or a residential place that seemed like if it was there were a lot of people out there, all of a sudden all the cars were parked there. This has got to be something that's, that's very popular. So we'd take pictures, we'd study a lot, we'd talk a lot about different things. And this market concept at 809, the market 809, Third Avenue in Huntington. Something we put together based on seeing those places in larger markets. We did a smaller version of that here. And fortunately, I have to thank the people of Huntington and the region. They've really been responding well. Welcome back to News Center 88, voted best news program by the National Broadcasting Society. I'm Rebecca Law. And I'm Abigail Cunningham. The Pentagon says China is expanding its nuclear force must much faster than U.S. officials predicted just a year ago. In a report to Congress, the Pentagon says this highlights a broad and accelerating expansion of military power designed to enable Beijing to match or surpass American global influence and power by mid-century. The report says the number of Chinese nuclear warheads could increase to 700 within six years and may top 1,000 by 2030. The report did not say how many weapons China has today. A year ago, the Pentagon said the figure was, quote, in the low 200s, unquote. The World Health Organization has granted an emergency use license to a coronavirus vaccine developed in India. In a statement today, the UN Health Agency said it had authorized Covaxin, made by India's India's Bharat Biotech. The decision makes Covaxin the eighth COVID-19 vaccine to receive WHO's green light. The license also offers reassurance for for a shot that India's regulators authorized long before advanced safety and efficacy testing was completed. Covaxin was developed by Bharat Biotech in partnership with the Indian Council of Medical Research. 
who said the vaccine was found to be about 78% effective in preventing severe COVID-19 and was, quote, extremely suitable, unquote, for poor countries due to its much easier storage requirements. The attorney for a renowned New Orleans trumpet player says nothing would be gained by sending him to jail in a million-dollar charity fraud case. Claude Kelly made the argument in federal court today on behalf of Irvin Mayfield. Irvin and his musical partner, pianist Ronald Markin, were awaiting sentencing this afternoon. Each could get five years in prison for steering more than $1.3 million from the New Orleans Public Library Foundation to themselves. Kelly says Mayfield took full responsibility for his wrongdoing and pointed to numerous community improvement efforts by the musician, said Mayfield has, quote, an incredible capacity to make it right, unquote. President Joe Biden recognized migration flows would spike if he scrapped his predecessor's hardline border policies without a new asylum system in place. He was prepared for traffic to return to highs of 2019, but arrivals exceeded expectations almost immediately. Some issues could not have been predicted, and major structural problems predate him. But a review of the, by, of the past year by the Associated Press shows Biden, surrounded by many immigration advocates, was unprepared for the challenge, which included record arrivals in the Rio Grande Valley and a camp and a camp of about 15,000, mostly Haitian refugees, in a small Texas border town. Republican Winsome Sears will become the first female lieutenant governor and the first woman of color to hold statewide office in Virginia. Sears defeated Democrat Hala Ayala in yesterday's election. Sears rocketed out of political obscurity to win the GOP nomination on the strength of a campaign photo in which she posed holding a military rifle. A former Marine, she also highlighted her background as a Jamaican immigrant campaigning against illegal immigration. Sears had a brief stint in electoral politics nearly 20 years ago as a one-term delegate in the General Assembly representing parts of Hampton Roads. Ayala also would have become the first female lieutenant governor and woman of color to hold statewide office if she had won.